Howdy to dream, cowboys. Welcome back to another episode of the Westworld Fan Podcast Western Movie Club. Today's movie, The Magnificent Seven from 2016, starring Denzel Washington and Chris Pratt. I'm James. And I'm Ryan. And this is the Westworld Podcast. So HBO has said that they want to keep Westworld as a fall show. But, uh, not this upcoming fall. Right, that wouldn't matter if perhaps they follow that up with, so coming this October. But they they, they didn't. They said something way worse. So in the meantime, we're going through history's greatest Western movies, and some of them more recent than, than history, I guess. And by history's greatest Western movies, James means the Western movies that we come up with in a pinch in the last two minutes of recording a podcast and are like, oh god, what are we going to say we're going to watch next week? Always the greatest. Always the greatest. And this week is a good example of that. While we watched The Magnificent Seven. Magnificent Seven, a movie that both James and I are a little closer on than we were for The Lone Ranger. And I'm glad that, uh, a little spoiler alert, James liked it a little bit more than he liked The Lone Ranger, which is good because I listened to that podcast back and half of it, the mo- when you're just summarizing it, you sound like you hate it. <laughs> I was the naysayer for a week. You were the naysayer for the week, and as it turns out, to be the naysayer and to say the plot is not a good mixture. So, Ryan, have you seen the 1960 Magnificent Seven? I have not seen either movie this movie was based off of, because this movie is a remake of a remake, and also I'm aware for all film buffs out there that to not see Seven Samurai by uh, Kurosawa is, like... It's it's against the moral code of being a filmmaker. I watched uh, some of it when I was a child. It was going, and then my mom came around the corner to see what I was watching, and she was like, oh, God, no. That cannot be happening right now. And I just never got back into it. She ruined it. I blame this on, my, on her, really. I did watch Seven Samurai a long time ago when I was on a Kurosawa kick, and... I remember liking most of it, but then not actually really liking the big set-piece battle, because it went on for a really long time, and it just didn't hold my attention that well. A lot like Western movies, very, very long. Something that we've learned over these past few weeks is that I think a staple of the Western genre is that you have to make a long movie, because at some point someone realized that Good, Bad, and Ugly... It's three hours long, so if you make a Western movie that's, like, less than two hours long, then you just apparently aren't trying. Yeah, and that's why Cowboys and Aliens had to be two hours and 30 minutes. God, that movie sucked. And you know what that movie did to me? It has killed... Uh, that The little boy in that movie has murdered children in movies for me. Because sometimes, in, like, in the past, like, I with this week, I watched My Girl with Macaulay Culkin, and... I don't remember the girl's name who's the who's my girl in My Girl, but I watched that for the first time this week with my girlfriend because she found out that I had never watched it, and she was like, "No, no, 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 we're gonna watch My Girl so I can cry next to you, and you can, be, and then I she can look at me and be like, "Are you crying? Why not?" So I watched that one this week, and I thought to myself when I got to the Magnificent Seven, like, My Girl and the Magnificent Seven are just the same exact movie. They're not. 
a lot happens in this movie. I have seven pages of notes, which is actually, of the Western Movie Club, that's the most notes I've taken so far. Yeah, I have 13 pages, 4,000 words. The second remake of this movie, by the way, just called The Magnificent Seven, uh, a vehicle for Yul Brenner and Steve McQueen. Yul Brenner playing Denzel Washington's character and Steve McQueen playing Chris Pratt's character. And Yul Brenner, as we all know, is our gunslinger from Westworld, which was made like 13 years after this, or after the first one he was in. So the movie opens up with a peaceful frontier town, Rose Creek. It looks a lot like Sweetwater and also looks a lot like the town from Cowboys and Aliens. It most likely was. It was pro- Although it was well done. I think everything was very uh, painted very nicely, but you can tell it was just a set uh, that they that they beefed up for this movie. The actual first shot of the movie is a landscape, which is heavily CGI'd, kind of uncanny valley area, and wholly disconcerting, which really, it made me think that this movie was going to be full of fake awfulness, but I was pleasantly surprised. It wasn't. It was just that one shot that was like, okay, that's not even what a landscape looks like. Off in the distance, we hear some gunshots ring out, which scatters some of the townspeople, and some dark and foreboding armed riders start making their way towards the town. We hear explosions in the distance. We learn that that is coming out of the mine. There's a mine near the town where apparently uh, there is gold, assumably, in that mine, or at least something very valuable. And the moment you see a mining company, and we've all been watching westerns, you kind of go to yourself, I bet the guy in charge of that mining company is the bad guy. In the town church, the town leaders are gathering to discuss the peril that is currently facing the citizens, and whether or not to stand up to the rich mining tycoon, Bartholomew Bogue, who wants to chase them out of Rose Creek so that he can strip mine the whole area to get more of that sweet, sweet gold. Which is a common theme in westerns. I My favorite western when I was a kid was a movie called Tall Tale, which is when they show, like, it's Paul Bunyan and John Henry and Pecos Bill... And they have to, you know, save a parcel of land from a guy who's trying to take it over. It's a man trying to take over land. You can't take my land is a huge Western plot point in the church that we're back into, which you have a bunch of people in a church in the beginning of a movie. And because I've been watching Westerns, the first thing I thought was, oh, somebody's going to burn down that church. And then the second thing I thought was, hey, in the back there, that's Matt Bomer from Gosh, what is that show on USA that's not Burn Notice? Oh. He's from... I like it. I figured it out. It's White Collar. Matt Bomer in the back there from the show White Collar. And his wife being played by an actress that I don't know, but who has, like, really, really red hair, and from the moment you see her, you're like, uh, if Matt doesn't make it, it feels like it feels like she's gonna be the centerpiece of this movie. The meeting in the church is interrupted when the tycoon himself, 
Bogue, arrives with his armed goons. There's a bunch of church rabble happening that are taking our jobs, or uh, we don't want those jobs. Uh, they're taking our land, but we want that land. In from the front comes Bogue. Uh, was it Bartholomew Bogue? I'm going to call him Bart from now on because I, I just think it's easier to say. So Bart walks in with a jar and he's like, guys, you know, all your land is barely worth, just not worth it. Uh, in this jar here is who even knows. And I'm going to walk up to the front of this church and then I'm going to call a child up here and make him stick his hand in it and freak him out. Yeah, there's a lot of drama over, like, oh, oh, he's putting that kid's hand in the jar. What's in the jar? We don't know. And it turns out it's just dust. And he compares the dust in the jar to the, their town and how it's all going to be dusty bullshit and it's all going to be gone soon. Exactly. So he's the bad guy. He's in charge of the mining company. He wants them out. He offers them too little money for their land. And he says, you know... Uh, I'll be back in three weeks. I'm going back to Sacramento, and then I'm going to be back. And by that time, you either sell me your stuff, or I kill you. His guards proceed to shoot up the roof of the church, which makes everyone run out. He sets the church on fire. When the preacher tries to stand up to him, uh, his goons start beating the shit out of him. Which is how you know that They'll just do anything to anyone. They're proving that by beating a preacher up inside the church he works in. I actually wrote down, like, punching a preacher is hilarious because it's something you don't see coming at all. No one's like, yeah, no, we're, you're going to, they're, after this, they're definitely going to punch that preacher in the face. Oh no, he did it. This causes one of the settlers, Matthew, to lash out at Bogue and he questions his morality, you know, like, what kind of man are you? And so Bogue's just like, whatever, and shoots him. Right. The moment Matt Bomer's Matthew says things to Bogue, his wife, who he will soon known, know as Emma Cullen, the redhead, it kind of looks at him like, what are you doing, man? You don't have to, don't say words right now. They're beating everyone up and they have guns. What are you doing? And then, yeah, he gets shot. What idiot. This sets off a small riot in which a few more villagers are killed. Bogue tells the town sheriff not to bury their bodies and to leave them there as a warning, and him and his goons ride out of town. The Magnificent Seven. Also, that little boy in the beginning who puts his hand into the jar, because of Cowboys and Aliens, I was so afraid that he would have literally any part of this movie. It's like, I do not need the little boy. I really don't. And uh, thankfully, this is a better movie than that, and they didn't subject me to to, to any adolescents trying to shoot guns the whole time. Yeah, I don't think they gave the kid any lines. They were smart about that. Yeah, seriously, he says nothing. It's the best part of the movie. So yeah, Bogue and his men ride out, and uh, Matthew's wife, Emma, cradles his body in despair. As we cut to a title sequence, and then we cut back out of it, and uh, Denzel is here, boys. Yeah, we see... Samuel Chisholm, played by Denzel Washington, riding into another town. He heads into the saloon where Chris Pratt, who plays Josh Faraday, is getting a massage from a pretty lady and playing some poker. Okay, so the moment Denzel comes over the ridge, I had this feeling of this movie was going to be one of those 
I bet these boys have no reason to fight. This isn't their fight. But, like, it doesn't matter that it's not their fight. They're going to be righteous anyway, you know? You know, James? I know. And it's here where I'll I'll make this point, because we have to make it all the way through, that this movie is half a Western and half an ensemble piece. Like, The Avengers, that was half a superhero movie and half an ensemble piece, or Ocean's Eleven, that was half a heist movie and half an ensemble piece, or The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, which was half an ensemble piece. And half a bad movie. Right, with Sean Connery. But gosh dang, do I like it, because I love ensemble pieces. I love getting the gang together, and I love having the gang do cool stuff. Give me it. Give me more of it. So, right, we're in Amador City. Denzel is obviously in this bar on business. Josh Faraday is playing against a bunch of uh, other card players who seem to not trust him. They're like, you know, just don't cheat. And he's like, I will definitely not. But the moment Denzel Washington walks in that saloon and as you might know denzel washington is an african-american man uh the all the music stops and everybody looks at him because they're super racist yeah everyone stops what they're doing sam goes up to the bar and orders a drink and at first the bartender's like we don't have that and he's like all right we'll just just give me a a normal liquor then he's like all right well we have that (laughs) that's fine we have that one sam begins to question the bartender about a wanted man everyone seems to get on edge He leans over to whisper in the bartender's ear, and everyone else in the bar starts reaching for their guns. Denzel Washington's Samuel Chisholm is looking for a man named Daniel Harrison, a.k.a. Powdered Dan. As everybody reaches for their guns slowly, it's kind of just a countdown to when is Samuel Chisholm going to be faster than them and shoot them because he's so badass. You have to prove that your characters are badass right in the beginning of a movie. So it was just sort of a countdown until Sam kills everybody, which he doesn't. He kind of just shoots their guns out of their hands uh, with actual and amazing precision. Yeah, Sam quick draws. He... Shoots down all of his enemies, and he, I think he kills the bartender when the bartender reaches for a shotgun under the bar. Chris Pratt slash Josh Faraday takes out his gun and stops a guy at his table from also pointing it at Sam Chisholm, probably saving his life in that moment. Right as Sam shoots the bartender, and then Sam Chisholm's like, somebody go fetch the sheriff. Everyone runs away until only Sam and Faraday are left, and Faraday kind of criticizes him for being a bounty hunter. Yeah, he says money for blood is a peculiar business. And I was like, that's a weird line, but a fun criticism. The other settlers all come up to the saloon, and they want to kill Sam for what he's done, but then he shows them that he is a lawman, and he gives them the wanted poster for the bartender, which they uh, rightly identify as the outlaw. A little reminiscent of Django Unchained. A little reminiscent of Bounty Hunter stories, which have been in the zeitgeist lately. Because of, I think, the resurgence of Star Wars. And everyone's like, oh, right, Boba Fett was fun. But it is something we I've heard a lot in a lot of movies lately. Emma and another Rose Creek citizen, Teddy, ride up and they try to buy Sam's services to protect their town. And at first he refuses until they mention Bogue, and at which point he gets interested. Of course he does. So he's like, you don't need a bounty hunter, you need an army. And they said they intend to hire one. And yeah, they say like, it's it's Bart. It's Bart, do you know the name? And he's like, I heard the name. 
and you're like, he knows who Bart is, and he has a vendetta against him. That's literally the only reason he's going to do this, but he's just not going to talk about it till the end, because he's a cool guy. They basically offer Sam all the money the townspeople could scrounge together, and you know he promises to help them save the town for a share of that gold. Cut to Josh Faraday, kind of getting out the back of the bar, walking along, and an old friend of his, Wild Bill, a.k.a. the two-gun kid, kind of holds him up and tries to steal back money. Uh, the Wild Bill and his his brother have guns pointed at Faraday, and they're there to get their money back. He distracts them with a magic trick with a deck of cards. He does some shitty magic trick, which doesn't work at first, but... Then he's like, oh, but this was really your card. And then, you know, they start, like, nodding their head and clapping. And as they're doing that, he shoots one of them in the face. And then he tackles the other one to the ground. He shoots the one who liked magic. In fact, it was, one of, it was like, the kind of the line that sold me on this movie. When he was like, do you want to see a magic trick? And Wild Bill was like, no, obviously we don't. And his, bro- his brother with a rifle in his hand was like, hey, just pick one real quick. You know I like magic. Yeah, and that guy dies, even though he's he probably the, le- the less guilty of the two of them. He died doing what he loves, though, seeing magic. Josh warns the two-gun kid to stop coming after him and blows his ear off for good measure. So, and you're like, maybe you'll see these people again. And he says, we're never going to cross paths again, are we? And I said, and I literally wrote down, yeah, I doubt it, because this is one of those things that always happens where they come back. And then... Faraday says, I didn't want to kill him. Shouldn't have touched my guns. And I was like, I don't believe that. You you shot him right in his head. You, you, There was obviously other things to do in the situation than shoot the guy who liked magic in the head. And also, these two guys don't even come back, or at least the one who's alive. This is just another example of a scene of, hey, look, Josh Faraday is badass. Emma and Teddy explain the hopeless situation to Sam, and in turn, Sam asks them if they're ready to stake their lives on this. And they're like, yeah. Faraday is arguing with an Irishman who he lost his horse to in a previous card game. When Sam and the other settlers ride up and offer to buy his horse back if he joins their endeavor, and he agrees. He doesn't have the money for the horse. Also, he asks a few pointed questions like, is there money in it? And then Denzel throws him the bag of money. And then... Faraday asks, who is she? And Sam says, Joan of Arc. Faraday says, how difficult is it? Sam says, impossible. How many you got so far? And Denzel says, two. You and me. And basically, Faraday likes those odds. He likes that it's almost impossible. He likes adventure. He says, you know what? That sounds fun. And then it kind of comes out to them all leaving together. Another heavily CGI'd landscape shot, which I hated. Not cool at all. Just give me a regular landscape shot i mean after you watch a few westerns in a row you can see that people just get landscape shots sometimes and they're really beautiful and they don't have to be cgi like i get it that you can cgi them but sometimes just because you can do something doesn't mean you should yeah was this not shot on location is that why they don't have any like everything cgi 
I I don't know. All I know is that any time they have a wide shot with a sky in the background and mountains in the background, you can tell the sky and the mountains are completely replaced. When you know in this world there are places with skies and mountains that are good. But obviously, not one with a western town below it that is a set. So, what are you going to do? While they're riding, Faraday expresses... While they're riding, Faraday expresses doubt when he hears that they're going up against Bartholomew Bogue. Sam decides that they should split up to look for more people, and he instructs Faraday to find a man named Goodnight Robichaud. Amazing name. Yeah, that's a good one. And meet them again in two days. When Sam mentions Goodnight Robichaud to Faraday... He says the Cajun Goodnight Robichaud, and then Faraday responds back with like a whisper, like the Angel of Death. <laughs> and I was like, that's lame, <laughs> but that is fun though. And uh, and they're like, okay, meet back here in three days. If I'm not here, I'm dead. Goodnight Robichaud, also known as the Rat, the, the Rat, <laughs> the Gambler. He's not either of those things, by the way. But I mean, it is tradition, right? You got to give some people some cool names. It's a western. Sam and Emma go after Sam's next bounty, an outlaw named Vasquez, who originally attacks and threatens Emma, but he agrees to join up when Sam promises that not only will they pay him, but that he'll stop coming after him for his bounty. We now have three. Teddy Flood and Faraday find Goodnight Robichaud. (laughs) You said Teddy Flood. Well, his name's Teddy and he's in Western. Okay, fine. Teddy Flood it is. Although we I we can't we can't call him that. I'll just think of James Marsden dying over and over again. They find Goodnight Robichaud, played by Ethan Hawke, who, while no one was looking, got really old. Yeah, but also Ethan Hawke is so good. Ethan Hawke and his friend Billy Rocks, who it, 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 I feel like there's some 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 undertones to their relationship, but we'll get into that. I think there's some subtext there. But anyway, Goodnight and his friend Billy Rocks are competing in a quick draw competition, which Billy wins the first round, and then his opponent's like, oh, let's go double or nothing, but this time with real bullets so that it's lethal. And so Billy wins the second round by pulling a knife out from behind his back and killing the dude with it before the dude can either before the dude can even get his gun up. It wasn't a knife, man. It was his hairpin. He had a pin that held in all his hair. He took it out of his hair and he threw it through that guy's heart. So it's obvious at this point that Goodnight Robichaud and Billy Rocks are in cahoots. It's odd that Goodnight Robichaud, the guy who is known as the Angel of Death, isn't in the gunfight. He's like sponsoring Billy Rocks, who who then wins gunfights. That's like their main source of income, it seems. And then as Goodnight Robichaud walks around the ring to get his money that people have bet, there was one guy who was like, yeah, I'm not going to pay you. And then the guy next to him was like, take it easy, Goodnight. He's drunk. He don't mean it. And then Goodnight was like, that's okay, sir. You just got to pay me double. So it's another version of, hey, look, Goodnight Robichaud is a badass. Faraday explains that Sam sent him to talk to Goodnight. And then they leave to go discuss this at a barber shop, And they have a little conversation while... Goodnight is getting a shave, and him and Billy are smoking some dank weed. They absolutely are. And then Billy, or not Billy, Faraday makes the point of, like, it takes half a day to get there, and it's like a day in between that and now, so we can do, like, half a day of drinking. 
And also, when Goodnight hears that Sam Chisholm sent us, and that's the reason he decides to talk to them, this other this movie is another one of those kinds of ones where in the ensemble piece, you have to have some of those moments where you don't just take all your time and explain who every character is. So a way that you know a character is badass is when you mention Sam Chisholm to Goodnight Robichaud, a guy who has just proven to be a badass to you by taking that other dude's money double. Because he's a badass and he hears Sam Chisholm's name, you're like, and he's like, who? Oh, I know him. He's also a badass. It's just a wonderful way to round out characters without doing a whole lot of work. We also kind of get a backstory where Billy Rocks who is a Korean actor, is actually quite a famous actor in Korea for Korean movies, but he's come to do this movie, and his American accent is perfect. Yeah, it's really great. And a big part of this movie is that it wasn't whitewashed at all. The Indian character is played by an Indian. The Korean character is played by a Korean. And not Johnny Depp. (laughs) You know what I mean? Uh, what I was getting at before, though, he's like, oh, yeah, I met up with Billy and no one wanted to be his friend because he's Asian. And so I've been his friend and we've been together ever since. And I'm like, is this like down low homoerotic subtext? Like, are they are they partners in crime and then also partners in love? That's that's kind of the vibe I got from Goodnight and Billy. Gosh, I hope so. They'd be a great couple. So Teddy and Faraday have picked up Goodnight and Billy Rocks. Sam and Emma have picked up Vasquez. They all meet together at their meeting place, and they form a shaky alliance, and then they ride off together to find more members. Yeah, there is conflict immediately. The moment Faraday sees Vasquez, he's like, oh, good, we got a Mexican, and starts making fun of him. So you're like, those two are going to have issues. They're looking for a famous frontiersman named Jack Horn. Oh, by the way... Now we have five. They find two men who claim to have killed Jack Horn. The Pigeon Brothers. While they're explaining their story, out of nowhere, this crazy mountain man comes out of the wilderness and just immediately kills both of them. Yeah, he throws an axe across the way and hits one of them dead center in the chest, chases the other one down and smashes his head in. This is Jack Horn, played by Vincent D'Onofrio, or as you might know him, like, Kingpin in the Daredevil TV series, uh, Private Pile in Full Metal Alchemist, and an amazing actor. <laughs> That's what he was. What? In Full Metal Alchemist? Not Full Metal Alchemist. You're right. <laughs> Full Metal Jacket. And uh, you know what? Those two things are basically the same, James. <laughs> uh, Jack Horn is my favorite character. He's got this really high-pitched, like, super strong southern accent, and he's like a real fucking weirdo. As Faraday sees him, he says, I believe that bear is wearing people's clothes. Yeah, Faraday's our, uh, he's our cut-up in this movie. Yep. And, uh, it doesn't happen yet, but you can tell. Now we have six. They're riding together through Native American territory, and they stop to camp for the night. They chill out by the fire, they have some nice character moments. Faraday teaches Teddy about gunfights, but it's actually just a ruse to steal his liquor. Yeah, Faraday's a a drunk. He's a drunk person, as it seems. Midnight and Sam discuss the job, 
And, good night. Um, good night. I wrote down midnight to that, that time. That's why this is hard for me, because I wrote down <laughs> Vaughn a bunch of times. <laughs> Vince Vaughn. I know. Good night and Sam discuss the job, and good night hints at Sam's past, and he wonders if Emma is kind of a stand-in for Sam's sister, and he's like, well, are we really doing this for justice, or are we doing this for your sister? Hinting at some kind of past. Yeah, he says, we're just making sure we're fighting the battle in front of us and not behind us, which is a great line. By the way, this movie was, and we didn't say this at the beginning, but uh, directed by Antoine Fakwa. I don't remember how to say his last name exactly, but he is a guy who does a lot of Denzel vehicles. He's done Training Day. And then, obviously, this was an adapted screenplay from the first two remakes of uh, First Sam and Samurai and, secondly, The Magnificent Seven in 1960. But this new script was written by uh, two guys. Uh, I guess one's last name was Wang, and he's a dude who wrote, like, The Expendables and other ensemble, large action ensemble pieces. And Nick Pozzolato, who was the guy who created and wrote the first and second seasons of True Detective, so which is a good written, like, a well-written show. So it, you see some of these lines come through where they say, you know, we're just uh, Ethan Hawke's character, Goodnight, is saying, just making sure we're fighting the battle in front of us and not behind us. There are some good lines in here, and that's why. When they wake up the next day, they're, they get warned by Jack Horn that they're being followed, and they spy off in the distance a Comanche warrior who is carrying the carcass of a, a sheep, I think? I think it's a deer, but more importantly than that, it's not Johnny Depp. Yeah, not not a white dude this time. No, nope. uh, and then as he approaches, Sam Chisholm walks up to him, starting to speak Comanche, which everyone's like, "What?" And then he asks the Indian if he speaks some white man English, and they're like, "Some." The Indian explains that the elders told him that his path is different, to which Sam Chisholm replies, "Our path is different too. We go to fight wicked men." We probably all die. <laughs> the Indian's like, yeah, I'm down. Yeah, he's got nothing better to do. Whatever. Yeah, and his name is Red Harvest. And the way that he ingratiates himself is he cuts out some sort of internal organ out of the deer. And he's like, here, eat a part of this. And Sam Chisholm does it like a man. Yeah, he doesn't blink. He's like, whatever, whatever it is, I'll eat it. Yeah, and then Red Harvest has a bite of the other one, too. And we are complete, everybody. We ride across the desert seeking revenge. Yeah, they quickly ride back to Rose Creek, where the townspeople regard them warily. Sam goes up alone and introduces himself to the corrupt sheriff and his deputies, who are actually Bogue's goons. Yeah, the first two people in are Sam and Billy Rocks, the African-American and the Korean because they know that the moment they ride into that town, all the white people are going to be like, what is going on? These people aren't white. And then the thing happens that happens in Western movies at some point where the lawmen walk up to them, tell them that there's a ban on firearms and that you're going to have to give me that. And uh, they're like, Ugh, no. Yeah, the deputies demand they disarm. Sam's like, nah. The seven surround the deputies, and there's a tense standoff, and a couple of the deputies are picked off 
by uh, by a sniper fire from the rooftops. So yeah, there was a rifle on the roof pointed at Sam and Billy Rocks at the beginning there. Once the sheriffs and the sheriff's men, you can tell the sheriff is like not the guy in charge. It's one of the Blackstone men hired by Bartholomew Bogue who are kind of telling the sheriff what to do. Because at some point they're like, yeah, sheriff, go get Sam Chisholm's gun. And the sheriff's like, I have to walk over there? I'm the one who has to walk over there? Jesus. So there's a guy with a rifle up top, like kind of pointed at them. And and when the Blackstone men are sort of over Sam and Billy Rocks, they do a whistle for the rifle to take them out. But it turns out that rifleman falls off the top of the roof because Red Harvest is behind them and has taken him out. And then Red Harvest shoots an arrow through one of the other sheriff, uh, the sheriff's men, asked to say like, "Yeah, no, no, we're, uh, we'll shoot you." So, a giant shootout occurs in the town, uh, in which we get to see the seven display their varied talents. Good Knight is a sharpshooter. Red's got some bowman skills. Billy is throwing knives and stabbing people. And Jack Horn's fucking going insane and mauling people, like, tackling them and beating the shit out of them. Yeah, like, while eating, also. And while saying amazing lines, and then Faraday, being Steve McQueen, says something to the effect of, like, Well, if you do move, you'll be killed by the world's greatest lover, me. In the end, only one of the deputies manages to escape because Goodnight hesitates and isn't able to shoot him in the back as he rides away. Whoa, perhaps his past is informing his present. The sheriff does survive by hiding underneath the porch during the big fight, and Sam sends him off to Bogue, giving him his name, Sam Chisholm, telling him that he's from Lincoln, like the president, and he issues a challenge. He's like, if you want the town, come and take it, bitch. Yeah, he tells the sheriff to let Bartholomew know that if he doesn't come down there that Bart is a coward and you know that people in the olden days in the West would hear that and be like, well, I guess I have to go now. I think in modern days, people would be like, whatever, dude, I don't care what he said. Emma arrives at the town and she calls for everyone else to come out. And then she announces that she's found the heroes that are going to save the town. Yeah. And everyone's a little bit wary, you know, they uh they they come out of their little abodes and then the seven kind of realize what they've gotten themselves into in that moment where they all believed they were just here to have a fight and then when all those people come out they kind of realize like oops we're responsible for all of these people oh that's that's odd but for the moment they've liberated the town they're they're asking everyone who can fight to join them most of the townspeople are too frightened, and they aren't willing to fight, but there are some who want to join up. Sam estimates that they have about a week to prepare before Bogue and his men return in force. After the fight, all the seven are counting up their kills while Goodnight is uh, oddly silent in the back, because they're all like six, seven, six, seven, and... Uh, and Goodnight has a very low number, and also including the guy who he let go away because of his awful internal issues or something of, to, of that sort. There's two kinds of, like, action movie heroes. There are those who feel the gravity of, of the people they kill, and then you got your, 
your James Bond types who will shoot a man in cold blood and then make a quirky joke about it. Right, you got your Steve McQueens and your Goodnight Robichaws. So that night, the seven sit down and they eat together in the saloon, and they all seem to be having a pretty good time getting along. Yeah, we have now entered the middle of the movie. It's time for the ensemble to get to know each other, say quirky things, and have a fun time. The next day, many of the townspeople are seen leaving. Faraday catches eyes with a pretty girl who's on her way out. I'm not really sure what that was about. He's just a ladies' man, I guess. Yeah, he's the world's greatest lover. A mob of around 50 or so townspeople approach the Seven because they're ready to join the fight. Oh, good. They brought their pitchforks. So the Seven begin training the townspeople in combat strategy with Midnight teaching the men military rifle tactics, but nobody's really that good. Rifle training montage! It's a lot of things in this movie that remind me of the movie Last Samurai, which is a movie I really like. Like, you've got this, the people lined up doing rifle training. There's more stuff later on, but I don't want to spoil it. And oddly enough, when this movie was first being attached to an actor, the first actor who was in talks with being the actual star, the Sam Chisholm, was Tom Cruise. Ooh, I'm glad they got Denzel, though. For sure. He's amazing. He, I mean, he always plays Denzel Washington, but I'll, I'll watch that all day. The Seven are surveying the town from afar, and they're trying to develop a battle plan, but they all seem like they're not that optimistic about it. At some point, Sam Chisholm literally says, it's a box of death, which is, I think, just a callback to what action movie endings are. I've explained uh, the kill box in the past. The kill box is a action movie trope in which the third act occurs and the final battle is happening. And you make just an enclosed area. And if everybody dies in that enclosed area, the good guys win. And if one person lives, they lose. And so they just call it out and say, this town is our kill box. Let's make it as Home Alone 2 as possible. You know what I mean? Where he just took that apartment in New York City and made it a bunch of uh, full of traps. They're Home Alone 2-ing this thing. They go together to attack the Bogue mining operation outside of town. And they kill all the overseers, and they free the miners who are, like, all beaten up and bloody, like, like they're kind of slaves or something. Yeah, all of the people who they killed were sharpshooted, so it feels like Good Knight Robichaud was the one to do it, which is odd because he couldn't do it before, but now he can. I don't know, we never saw the guy who was actually shooting the gun, but we assume it was Robichaud because they were long shots. After that, uh, they find a big hut with dynamite inside which Faraday then gleefully says I've always wanted to blow something up yeah they've they're taken a page out of the the Lone Rangers book they're like I saw this in the Lone Ranger I know what we can do yeah we can have them be explosives and explode things then we cut over to Sacramento where Bartholomew Bogue is being told the bad news he has a sweating fit it kind of feels like he has some sort of drug issue that perhaps makes him sweat or because he just has a rage issue that makes him sweat as much as he does the sheriff is giving him the bad news you feel as though the sheriff is not going to have a good time here Bartholomew Bogue seems like a guy who kills the messenger and uh he does after being told like he called me a coward too well I guess I'll go, and because I can't help it, apparently. So we should say Bartholomew Bogue is played by Peter Sarsgaard, 
who's a pretty famous yeah. actor. With a pretty famous family. The SARS guards are, there are a bunch of them, and they all act. Faraday catches up with Emma out of the prairie, and he tries to give her some shooting tips, but she's already a pretty good shot. Yeah, she was like, I had a dad. And then Faraday was like, well, I didn't. And then he takes out his gun and hits the same target she wants like six times. And he's like, God damn, I'm good. And then Emma's like, why are you doing this? To which he responds, because Sam Chisholm paid for his horse, and this is the only way to get his horse back. But that's obviously not the truth. And then he kind of warns her. He's like, you know what's going to happen to you after you start killing people, huh? You're going to turn into turn into Chris Pratt. You're going to have nightmares. You're going to drink like I do. He also apparently feels the gravity like Goodnight Robichaud does, although he takes care of it with a different mean. In the saloon, Sam unveils their battle plan. They're going to lure Bogue's men into the town center, trap them there, fire on them from all sides. So, like, literally a kill box. Exactly. And if it looks like they're going to lose the battle, they'll blow up the mine out of spite, I guess. Yeah, they're going to dig some trenches. We see some uh, shots of all the little children painting spin wheels red. Uh, Sam asks Goodnight if he is going to be good, and have you overcome your fears enough to win? And Goodnight's like, yeah, I'm sure I'll be fine. The Indian rides out, Red Harvest is his name, Red Harvest rides out on his horse. Uh, at the time, I was like, I wonder if he's going to get back up like they did in Cowboys and Aliens, or I wonder if he's going to be a lookout. It turns out to be the second one. He's just going out there to see when Bartholomew Bogue is going to show up with his army that he's definitely hired and coming down here to kill everybody with. And then Billy and Goodnight are caught talking about that Goodnight has heard the dreams or heard a voice again and Billy's like everything's going to be fine man you just it's fine just 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 be able to kill people again come on get over it yeah he's been hearing voices billy tries to talk him down and give him a drink out on the veranda the preacher and sam are having a chat on the balcony about whether or not they're doing the right thing basically this preacher thanks him for giving everybody of the town their everyday pleasures back and Chisholm makes the point, you know, some of these folks aren't going to make it. The next day, they wake up, they put the bell back up in the in the tower of the burned-down church because it fell in the beginning there. And the Indian Red Harvest rides back up, and I thought he was going to be a lookout, but nope. He, he tells them the bad news. Bartholomew is here, and they attack at dawn. Sam catches Robichaud sneaking out of town. He's haunted by the horrors of the people that he had to kill in the war, and he doesn't want to kill anymore, and so he abandons them all, and Emma comes up and she's like, well, I'll take his place if he's too chicken. Yeah, as it turns out, Goodnight Robichaud was a sharpshooter for the Confederates, with like 22 confirmed kills. And he obviously has some sort of PTSD before anyone knew what PTSD was. And then as Sam Chisholm walks back and tells everybody else, you know, you can leave now. Forever hold your peace, you can leave. And then Vincent D'Onofrio's Jack Thorne has a great little monologue about how, like, people, a lot of people die for a lot less. And I, and I was like, the, the acting of Vincent D'Onofrio is almost out of place in this movie because it's so good. 
Yeah, he's my favorite character. He's doing this this wacky voice the whole time. He's like, I'm Jack Horn. I'm, I'm going to kill the bad guys. But it's totally believable. Bogue arrives that morning with an army of mercenaries, and their leader is a Comanche warrior named Denali. Right. Uh, but I do want to cover this thing. One night on the night before, right before we cut to the the rogue Comanche leader who is who's leading Bartholomew's gang, which is like, whoa, I bet him and Red Harvest are going to have some some things to talk about. Red Harvest the night before, right before we cut to this, ends that scene with saying, I'm hungry. To which Jack Thorne turns to him and is like, what? You can t- you can speak English? We have a lot to talk about because Jack Thorne's old job was uh, was scalping Indians. So yeah, the mercenaries are about to make their attack. They're all making their peace with God separately. The seven and some of the townspeople are held up in a hidden trench, and the women and children are all hiding together in a basement somewhere. There's a long line of soldiers on horseback, basically cowboys on horseback with guns. They're uh, lined up with Bartholomew looking out over the town on the southern side, the place where Sam said they would come from. And Sam rides to the edge of the town to kind of, you know, bait them into the center of it so they can all get shot. As Bogue's men ride up, Jackhorn detonates some TNT that's been buried beneath their feet, killing a huge swath of the mercenary army. Yeah, but not as many as he thought there would be, because as Sam Chisholm is watching unfold live, the line of horses kind of split into two to perhaps flank them on their sides, something that they did not plan for. And this was also kind of like Last Samurai. It's the same strategy, except they didn't have TNT in Last Samurai. They had these, like, burning oil balls, which they set on fire when the horses came by. It's similar! I like that movie. Anyway. (laughs) When things are the same, I like them. This... They create a front on the side of the town where the bombs went off, and that's where the townspeople have, like, their trench, and they sit up and they start firing, and the mercs and them are exchanging gunfire across that front. So we're in the middle of a very large fight scene, one that is going to go on for a little while, and you you get that feeling right away because there's a man on fire, he's just running around, we don't know how he got on fire. Uh, Explosions take a lot of those... Horses out, as James said, when they were coming up, but the but the flank split was ki- kind of out of nowhere, so not as many of them died as need be. People are coming out of the bunkers now and kind of taking shots of them, including Jack and Billy uh, and Billy Rocks. Everyone's shooting everyone. Sam is riding back into the center of town to try to draw them in, and he's kind of side-saddled for a moment, taking out people, being really cool. And Billy is out there now with his knives. He takes his knives out, stops using guns, because why do that when you can just stab a bunch of people? Faraday takes cover while uh, Red Harvest from the top shoots flaming arrows down and lights things on fire. There's many an arrow raining down. Faraday blows up some other stuff, some uh, the other flank of, uh, of one of the flanks of horses. He blows them up and he smiles because he's always wanted to blow something up. And then... You know, Sam stomps a guy with his horse, which is pretty messed up, but pretty awesome and and fun to watch. And then Jack picks up a gun, falls back, and no one has died yet. Or at least no one important. A bunch of people have died, just no one important. 
Then Faraday blows up a building. Yeah, some of the smaller buildings are packed with explosives, and so when the riders get close, Faraday blows them up. Yeah, on one side of the barn, Jack Horn fires a giant cannon into the crowd of mercs. That was pretty cool. Yep, and then Teddy Q, or Teddy Flood as we all know him now, <laughs> uh, who's not James Marsden, but what the guy who went with Emma Cullen to go hire Sam Chisholm, he gets clipped in the leg at some point, he can't move. Uh, Billy Rocks gets a sweet jump and kill. He jumps and falls backwards while killing two people. And uh, Bart is kind of over this. He's over all of his people dying needlessly. So he's like, get the wagon. One of the main goons from the earlier scenes shoots... I call him a semi-boss. Yeah, he's the mini-boss. He shoots Faraday in the gut. It's a bad hit. He gets a body shot on him. Which, uh, in the the 19th century, is not a good thing to happen. No, if you put it in your torso, that's just a... That's bad news. You're probably not going to live. He would have probably died, Faraday, if Vasquez didn't save him from another guy coming out of his left. But... And they kind of tip their hats to each other. But it's so far so good. Uh, you know, earlier in this, before... When they were describing the kill box, Faraday gave this little speech... And about how uh, they were asking, like, how does the situation feel? And he told a a story about how a guy was falling down a a a seven-story building. And every floor that he hit, uh, as he was asked how he was, he said something to the the effect of, like, you know, so far, so good. Like, he knew he was falling every floor over and over and over again. And in this moment, when Faraday gets clipped... He kind of harkens back to that, like, you know, I'm not dead yet. <laughs> so far, so good. Sam gets pinned down, but then is saved when Goodnight rides back in from out of nowhere and rejoins the fight, and he warns them, he's like, you guys gotta get down, Bogues got a Gatling gun, you gotta get down. Red Harvest is still on the high ground, although he's using, like, a gun now. <laughs> and, uh, and as the chain gun rails into the city on a jumping horse to save everybody is coming back from the depths coming back from his cowardice is good night Robichaud. one of Bogue's goons is like hey boss we still have a lot of our dudes down in the city and Bogue's like I don't give a shit fire and yeah his just... gatling gun takes out mostly everyone who's not a main character just rips the city apart too or just rips the town apart too, bullet holes everywhere, and like there's so much devastation that the fight actually like dies down for a little bit. Yeah, in this scuffle, Vasquez gets clipped in the shoulder. Sam Chisholm sees that one of the buildings that has the kids in the basement is on fire, so he has to run in there and go save those kids. Goodnight Robichaud and Billy Rocks climb up the steeple. Uh, they basically climb the the rope that has the bell. Teddy Flood slash Teddy Q is still in a in a place where he's just in a like a a hut where he can't walk. And then the Comanche Indian leader, who is leading Bartholomew's, uh, you know, ensemble, is now in town and comes one v one with Jack Thorne. Yeah, he just fills him with arrows and Jack Thorne falls to his knees and it's really sad because he was my favorite character and he's our first and, casualty of the seven yep one down 
Jack uh, didn't really get as much help as he could have there while Teddy Flood kind of just watched him die. It kind of felt like that time slash scene in Saving Private Ryan, which is one of the most upsetting scenes in movie history to me, where uh, a, a a foreign soldier is slowly but surely stabbing uh, an American soldier in the chest while another American soldier is like... Uh, like bent over in cowardice yeah the medic the medic who's a conscientious objector is like just watching it happen right and he just lets his friend die while he could save him and it feels like that's what kind of happened with teddy and jack thorne here like teddy could have saved jack he just couldn't move one and didn't try hard enough to but jack thorne finally gets ousted and gets shot by an indian who uh is uh oh the irony because jack used to Literally scalp Indians for money. Yeah, then after that, Denali chases Emma and the preacher who are trying to take cover in a saloon, but he corners them. Up in the crow's nest, Billy and Goodnight share a special moment. Billy's like, I knew you'd be back. I love you. Yeah, he said, I knew you'd be back because you forgot your booze. I have your booze here. I knew you'd be back. Goodnight's not like, nah, man, I, I left my special guy. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we port back to the old Comanche Indian, kind of slowly but surely walking towards Emma, who is trying to shoot him, but she has no more bullets left in her gun. Emma's kind of covering a a, a guy who, who's been shot or been injured. And then from behind him, Red Harvest comes up and you're like, oh, my God, old Indian versus new Indian 2016 fight. Yeah, they have a pretty brutal fight. Uh, knife fight and it, it's not really much of a competition though red harvest just brings him down effortlessly and as he pushes him over the side of a stairway he says you're a disgrace and then pushes him over it's pretty sweet and then we cut back and uh they're reloading that gatling gun everyone yeah they fire a second round into the city and Goodnight and billy take a bunch of body shots and they fall over and they die without ever, you know, figuring out that thing they had between between the two of them. Two down, four left. Before that happens, they share another moment where, you know, Goodnight's like, you know what my daddy used to say? And Billy was like, no. And Goodnight was like, he used to say a lot of things. <laughs> I thought it was pretty funny. Especially because it was right before they all, they, they both died. Because the, the literally Bartholomew was like, point that Gatling gun at the steeple. Because they're the ones who uh, are laying down all the suppressive fire and you need to get rid of that because they were like oh wait they were you know what they were laying suppressive fire for for faraday faraday kind of sees his his tummy and he sees that you know he's not going to make it in the first place and someone yells out you know someone's got to go do something about that gatling gun so faraday jumps on his horse so apparently he's going to do something about it yeah, he takes a suicide charge at a Gatling gun, like in that movie I like, Last Samurai. <laughs> wow. Wow. It's a lot uh, like Last Samurai. <laughs> so, um, yeah, he gets shot like 20 times. He gets his horse shot out from under him. He's crawling, like, on his knees, and he gets shot again, and he can't really walk. He's just a few feet from the Gatling gun, and... He's about to get coup de grace by one of the goons, but then the head goon, who's got an eye patch, that's how you know he's the leader. That's how you know. He's like, nah, man, let him smoke his cigar, and 
He's actually a pretty class act in this moment. The gang leader, like, lights his cigar so that he can have one last smoke before he dies. And then the gang leader is going to give him the killing blow, but Faraday falls over, presumably dead. And then as everybody turns around, Faraday pops back up with a stick of dynamite in his hand, and he's like, ha hey dudes, he throws the stick of dynamite, everything blows up, including himself. One more down, three to go. Sam, Red Harvest, and Vasquez, plus Emma, I suppose. It's a kamikaze attack, and it paid off. It did. It took out the Gatling gun, probably led them to victory. So now it's only Bogue and his, like, two henchmen guards left. And he walks into town, and his guards go into a building and are just immediately killed by Sam. Yeah, they walk out real slow, like they're just regularly walking, and then they fall over. And also, before we move on a little bit, I just want to point out how brave this movie was. This movie kills Chris Pratt. What movie kills its star, Chris Pratt? I I don't know. It's a good movie that has to. It has to be a good movie when they do it and to make it like something that makes sense. And I think it did. Yeah, I didn't see that coming. I kind of figured that like Jack and and Goodnight were dead for sure, like before the battle started. But I really didn't see Chris Pat dying. No, although, and then as we get to the one v one, it is now Bartholomew Bogue v Sam Chisholm, and we'll get to there in a moment because we're not going to be able to see uh, for a little bit here Vasquez or Red Harvest. But I thought it was a little odd that the two people who they did not kill off and are not dead yet are the Mexican and the Indian. It kind of felt like they wouldn't kill them off because they felt like they couldn't. You know what I mean? We mean that was like a, a, a cynical decision on their part? Yeah, it feels like it, because everyone else dies in a cool way, and Vesquez and Red Harvest are by far the most underdeveloped characters of this movie. The ones who, Vesquez especially, could die and nobody is really emotionally attached to that character, but they still live, which I felt, I was, I found it odd, and I, I'm not sure if it was, it happened because the producers of it felt like, no, let's keep the two minority characters alive like no other movie ever does which is a a solid fact like no other no other movie allows those kinds of characters to live uh so was it a brave decision or was it a cynical decision i'm not sure sam and bogue have a standoff but i mean nobody's in suspense over who's gonna win this shootout bogue's like some rich bitch and sam's the ultimate badass yeah and chris pratt's already dead you can't kill denzel washington too they quick draw, but Sam blows the gun right out of his hand, Lone Ranger style. That's like the Lone Ranger signature move. Bam, out of your hand. Absolutely, because he is for justice and a lawyer. Expelliarmus. <laughs> and he's like, oh, go ahead and pick up your gun again. I'm not worried. So Bogue does, and he shoots it out of his hand again. Idiot. Yeah, so he does. he's badass, dude. And then Bogue turns to run away, and Sam shoots him in the ass, which was nice. Hula- nice touch. Hul- hilarious. Boke crawls into the church, and Sam, like, coolly stalks after him. While taking off his hat, because he's still a gentleman, you don't wear a hat in church, and Bartholomew was kind of trying to use that against him, like, you wouldn't kill a man in the house of God, except for it's, like, the church that Bart burned down, like, a week ago. Bogue begs for mercy, and Sam tells him to say his prayers. 
Yeah, and at this point we learn that the full backstory here that uh, Bogue and Sam are a, are a little closer than we all previously thought. Sam says something to the effect of, and kind of reminiscent of the Viper fight, actually, in Game of Thrones. Yeah, says, pray for my mother, who your men raped. Pray for my two sisters, who your men killed. And then, did they pray, or did you pray, or did they pray when they put the rope around my neck? It was just very reminiscent of the Viper Mountain fight. Yeah, up until now, Sam's had, like, a high collar, but he, he pulls it down to reveal that he's actually got a scar from where he where they tried to hang him. When Bogue had done this previously, he had chased a bunch of homesteaders off of their land and killed Sam's family. In Lincoln, Nebraska. Lincoln, like the president. Sam starts to strangle Bogue, and Bogue pulls out a second gun from his suit, and he's about to shoot Sam. Oh my god, Sam's gonna die. But he gets taken out, shot in the head, by Emma, who kills Bogue, saves Sam... And the day is won, and Emma, like, cries bitterly about everything they've lost. Including her husband a week ago, you know? She's still, like, right before all of this, she was at her husband's grave. She still is in deep mourning. And in fact, she's, because she's the catalyst for all of this, you could argue that Emma's the actual hero in this movie. So the Seven are victorious, the townspeople are saved, but their town is wrecked and their friends are dead. All of the music in this moment, by the way, is so great. The music in this movie is so, so great. And a little tin back, a tidbit I learned is that in the original Magnificent Seven, John Williams didn't write the music because he was still in the orchestra playing the piano. The survivors comfort one another and they mourn the dead. The preacher promises Sam that he will give his four fallen comrades a proper burial. Yeah, he looks around, sees Goodnight dead, sees Billy dead, sees Jack dead. He knows that, uh, you know, Faraday blew up. And then they get on their horses and they ride out while everybody sells, tells them thanks. The little boy from the beginning who had to put his hand in the jar looks up to them as they leave. Doesn't even say a word, thank God. Yeah, he's like, now I'm going to go to that fair from the Lone Ranger and hear this story from Tonto. Exactly. And the people in the town gather around the church, and three of the seven ride off into the sunset. Yeah, of course, they have to ride off into the sunset, or, or the movie wouldn't have been able to get funding. But, what, this is just one weird thing in a movie I really liked. The battle's over, and they just immediately leave. I would stay for like a minute. I would rest after the big battle. No? No, you're just leaving? Alright. Lone Ranger didn't stay either, dude. Bad guys don't look at explosions or what they've done that's good. You gotta get out of there. As they ride off, a voiceover of Emma Cullen comes over them and says something to the effect of, whatever they were in life, here at the end, each man stood with courage and honor. They fought for the ones who couldn't fight for themselves, and they, and they died for them as well. Something that didn't belong to them. And... It was magnificent. And then they show the four graves of Jack Thorne, Josh Faraday, Goodnight Robichaux, and Billy Rocks. A proper Western ending. And I like that so many of them died. <laughs> did you like that last line? It was magnificent. I mean, whatever. It was super corny and, and dumb. But, like, whatever. It's a Western. Sometimes you have to be super corny and dumb. It's 
as the credits roll, we get the classic the classic theme from the 1960 movie. Bum, 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 bum. I'm Yule Brenner. I'm in this movie. And in 13 years, I will be the gunslinger and in Westworld. And then Ryan and James will talk about us a lot. I think that's what the lyrics are. But yeah, I love this movie. I think it's, it's... How dare you? You didn't even say you liked my song. How uh, dare I, you? I love that song. You didn't. You did it. You didn't <laughs> even like it. You hated it, James. Your silence speaks bounds, James. I think this movie is really underrated. Critics Changing did not love it. People didn't really come out to see it that much. Nope. Uh... I don't know. Maybe I mean there have been a lot of westerns recently. Maybe people are a little overloaded. I think it was just marketed poorly. It was marketed like a ensemble action movie because that is a lot of what it was. And in fact, I would say one of my biggest knocks on this movie is that the third act is an ensemble action movie. It is not a western. You know, it's based in the west. They're shooting guns and they are on horses, but it's not a western. And you know, the way you know that is you watch Good, Bad, and the Ugly, and you watch the third act of that movie, and you're like, gosh, dang, this is a Western. All these moments are so drawn out. Suspense is a huge, huge part of what a Western is. You, They make you wait for it. They make you sit in moments and just seethe in them. And this movie, Magnificent Seven, the third act never does that. It's an action movie. It just... Something happens, something happens, something happens, something happens, something happens. My notes were basically like a sentence of like, this character is this, then this character is this, then this character is this. Because they're doing the Avengers model where they all have to have something quippy and fun happen during the, the fight because they're all pretty underdeveloped characters still and you don't really know any of them. Because this is an ensemble action movie and not a western. But, anywho, it's still over two hours that uh, something a western is. And I guess I'll ask you, James, did it bother you at all that it kind of strayed from being what a Western was at the end? Or were you just kind of thankful it was moving faster than other older Westerns do? Well, I think they stayed pretty true to the original and to Seven Samurai, where a, a good chunk of the movie is devoted to to the kill box scene. What, what, what did you say, like 40 minutes of the movie? Or the final Almost, battle? yeah, yeah. And that's, you know, like you said, it's a lot like Avengers, where there's a huge swath of the movie is the kill box, and maybe that would be a little bit gratuitous, but there was a lot of good build-up and character moments leading up to that, so I think I think it was a, a decent balance. Okay, so what movies have we watched so far? Let's rank them. So, number one, probably the good, the bad, and the ugly. Yeah, same for me. Number two for me is Magnificent Seven. Yeah, same for me. This is going badly. <laughs> Number three for me is probably Cowboys and Aliens. Uh, How many of these have we watched? Have we watched four of them? We watched four. Yeah, Cowboys and Aliens and Lone Ranger. This is the only... Oh, gosh. I No, uh, yeah, that's the only place where we're going to disagree. Three is going to be Lone Ranger for me, and four is going to be Cowboys and Aliens. <laughs> so... I would give this movie a solid B plus, A minus, somewhere in that range. I really liked it. I had a lot of fun watching it. It was a little bit long, but it didn't really overstay its welcome. 
I'm not going to give this one a letter grade. I, I just liked it. I liked it, you know, not as good as the good, the bad, and the ugly, which is the goat. You can't get past that greatest of all time. And better than Cowboys and Aliens and The Lone Ranger, two modern myth stories based in the Western ethos. So, obviously, it was good. I wish more people went to go see it because it was a truly entertaining movie that I think treated its characters pretty well and, and, you know, didn't make you think a whole lot. I think made made me think less than The Lone Ranger did uh, and was more reminiscent in the third act of Cowboys and Aliens. It was just, you know, done better, written better. It was better. No, no aliens. No aliens. So better. Also, no child. You know, actually, no. Even if there were aliens, it would have been still better as long as there was just not a tiny little child who had lines. Yeah, acting poorly. Right. So here comes this part, James, where we didn't pick a movie for next week and we don't know. where we have to, on the spot, pull a movie out of our ass. We got a tweet from Stu Face Down, at Stu Face Down. Westworld Ryan, can you do a podcast on a million ways to die in the West? And if not, can you say, hey, Stu? So I think down the line, we we could definitely do a podcast on a million ways to die in the West. Are you familiar with that movie, Ryan? Yeah, but I haven't seen it. I know it stars Seth MacFarlane and Liam Neeson and uh, perhaps Charlize Theron. I can't remember who the female lead in that movie is. But yeah, I would obviously uh, love to watch that movie i never actually have seen it i know it's gotten like weird reviews basically like uh family guy in the west uh and in either case hey Stu. yeah hey Stu. what's up dude we i think we'll definitely get to that one though i had a movie in mind oh my gosh you actually know one you know we've been watching a lot of art house westerns and i think it's time that we really raise the bar and watch something that's gonna get everyone thinking Oh, gross. Wait, are you about to are you about to really come at the side of this one and then have like and it's going to be a, a cool joke? The classic film starring the dynamic. You're really really twins. really real. Oh. <laughs> Mary Kate and Ashley Olsen. <laughs> I can't wait. I want to do this so badly. Entitled how the West, How the West was, was fun. fun. <laughs> Yay! Yay! Extremely, yeah, yeah, yeah. extremely clever pun on the uh, the classic film How the West Was Won. Don't watch How the West Was Won. You should watch How the West Was Fun. Yeah, and it's going to be the shortest movie by far in the Western genre because it's a Mary-Kate and Ashley movie, so it's like 50 minutes long. I'm going to give all this credit, by the way, to my girlfriend, who I was like, we were watching Western movies, and as a joke, she was like, oh, there's only one you should watch, and it's How the West Was Fun by Mary-Kate and Ashley Olsen, and I was like, ha 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 ha, and then I told that to James, and James was like, yes, oh my god, yes, if we can find it, then we did find it, it's on the internet. Yeah, if you do some Google foo, and really search, you can find it streaming, and you'll probably get a million viruses, but you can find it. I can't wait. So yeah, join us here next week for How the West Was Fun, starring (laughs) the indomitable... The indomitable! Mary-Kate and Ashley Olsen. Oh, oh, gosh, this is gonna be neat. Thanks again to everybody who listened. If you're just listening, that means a lot to us. If you want to go the extra mile, you can follow us on Twitter, at WestworldRyan. You can follow us on SoundCloud. Or you can leave us a nice iTunes review, which helps people find us. Or... 
you can just pass it on by word of mouth. If you know people who like westerns, you know people who like movie recaps, send them our way. Say your words about it. I'm James. And I'm Ryan. And this is the Westworld Podcast. <laughs>